happened many things to many people in history. For some, it's been a, a releasing. For some, it's been just that, a worshiping. You know, this song is interesting for me because it's a... Dietrich Bonhoeffer is this famous Christian in history. He was in prison uh, during the reign of Hitler in the Third Reich. And he used to say this song because he had it memorized in his heart to give him inspiration to, to continue on. He was in prison for about five years and was martyred uh, later thereafter. But he said he wouldn't have lasted more than a day without this. See, there's something about worshiping the Lord that isn't only a giving back to Him, but it's a getting for us. It can hold us steadfast. Make us stand up when we feel like, man, we can never could get up. It can help us put our chin out and our shoulders back when we feel like cowering away. To worship the Lord is a giving and a receiving. And I pray that you're getting both of those today. Can we just pray real quick? Lord, thank you so much for your for your spirit, for your sovereign will, and for uh, the inspiration that you've put in man's heart to write, to sing, and to worship you. We thank you this morning for this church and for this time in our life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. Not to forgive me from the very start. I got a little bit of a cold I'm fighting here, so my throat's a little raspy. Good morning again. Welcome to ESIS. My name is Beck, and I do actually work here. My wife and I, Lindsay, who's in the back there, have been uh, gone for the last uh, three and a half weeks on a road trip around the country. Uh, thank you guys for allowing us to go on vacation. I really appreciate that. It was a lot of fun. I'll tell you little snippets about it from week to week. Next week you need to come because I'm going to show you guys a video of Lindsay shooting a gun. If that's not the best teaser to come to church, man, I don't know what is. It is hysterical. <laughs> uh, but this week, uh, you know, we, we went all over the country, but I want to tell you a story about Chicago. The, the one thing I'll always remember about the whole road trip, we did 15 states, 4,500 miles. Okay, we did some, we covered some turf. Went from Colorado to North Carolina, North Carolina to DC, DC to Chicago, Chicago to Nebraska, Nebraska all over Colorado, and then eventually home. In Chicago, like Lindsay is, is a tourist. She's like, let's get coffee cups that say where we've been and overpriced t-shirts and all crap like that. I'm the worst tourist ever. I want to find a local cat. I want to tell him what do you what's the best place to have coffee or to go get a drink or to go have a meal around here and then I want to go do what I do wherever I am there. That's it. I'm not really interested in like being a part of their culture. I come from where I come from. I came here to just do what I do there. That's what I want to do. She's not into that. So she's like, well, Beck, we need to go see the Sears Tower, which is now the Willis Tower, the tallest building in Chicago. And in Chicago, at the Willis Tower, they've made this thing called the Sky Deck, where they've taken the, the windows of the building and they've pushed it out maybe, I don't know, four feet. And you can step out onto this plexiglass floor, and from the outside of the building, you can see 120 or some stories down. It's like 1,200 feet. 
to the ground. Okay, it's a tourist thing. It costs like fifty bucks. I don't want to do this. I said, honey, we live in Colorado. I can take you fourteen thousand feet in the air. You can go see Utah. Why are we going to go see this? See the street? She wants to do it. So we get to the elevator, and the lady standing in the front of the elevator is like, just so you know, it's an hour and a half wait. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do any of this. She wants to do it. So we pay her 50 bucks. And it's like an airport. You know the, like the bank lines you walk through like this? And, you know, people are looking at me. Oh my gosh, it's Godzilla taking a picture of me. You know what I mean? They're like, look at this giant. You know, I'm standing in line on my flip flops like this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. We get to the elevator, which was kind of cool. They, they take you up super fast. You go like 120 floors and 40 seconds or something like that. And there's this video showing you, you know, here's passing the Eiffel Tower and this is the, you know, so on and so forth, which was kind of cool. We get to the top and then there's people walking around and you can see Chicago from all these different views because it's surrounded by windows. You remember the scene from Ferris Bueller when he leans on the glass? That's the Willis Tower. And so there's this place where he actually does that and you can go lean against the glass. And that was kind of cool. So we're walking around. I'm thinking, okay, long wait. This isn't that bad. Then we get to the side of this room where the sky deck is. It's another 30 minute wait. I am like, this is the dumbest thing we've ever done. We're just going to go look out a window. But the window's on our feet. She wants to do it. So we're standing in line going back through the airport stuff again. And I get bored. And when I get bored, I get talkative. I either get talkative or I get pissed. So I know I couldn't be pissed around my wife, so I get talkative. I'm talking to people in line. And I'm talking to her. And I look, and there's the window. There's this, uh, I'm standing next to this pane, and there's this fly. It's the coolest thing I saw the whole trip. I go to hit this fly because I'm bored. The fly is on the outside of the window. No, you don't understand. This fly is 120 floors in the air. This is the astronaut of all flies. This is the Neil Armstrong. I'm asking Lindsay, I'm like, what do you think this fly is saying? She's like, I don't know. You're being loud. I'm thinking he's probably like, I made a mistake. Like, how is this fly? They live like five days. You know what I mean? So like one fifth of his life has been like hanging on for dear life on this piece of glass. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. So there's kids next to me. I'm like, hey, check out this fly. People are taking pictures of the horizon and the lake. And I'm zooming in on this little sucker like, man, you are my my inspiration. I, I didn't get a good photo. I wanted to put one up, but it would have been like a little black dot. It was awesome. I thought it was cool. Then we get to the sky deck, and that's kind of the end of my cool story. But we finally get to where it's our turn, and Lindsay has her hand around me. We get to the edge, and she's like, I don't think I can do this. (laughs) Oh, no. Dear, you are going. You will step on this glass, and you will look to the ground, and you will take your little picture, because I didn't pay 50 bucks. I mean, the 50 bucks is worth a fly, but I didn't know that was going to happen at the time. So we step out on this sky deck, and she's nervous, you know? I mean, it is kind of... I've been mountain. I'm not really afraid of heights or anything. I stepped onto it, and I was kind of like, all right, Lord, if this is how I'm going to go, you know what I mean? This is kind of... Maybe I land on my feet before I get crushed to like a bloody mess. Anyway, it's nerve-wracking. She's nervous. White face, doesn't want to talk much. And there's this picture guy. You know, they take a picture way up in the air so you can kind of get this downward view. And he looks at her, and he goes... Honey, are you nervous? She's like, she doesn't even speak. She goes, he's a jerk and very funny. And he jumps onto the platform. She has great manicure. I mean, you need to know this about my wife. My wife's nails are incredible. And she took those nails and went into my back. And so he jumps and I go, 
So now I look scared. You know what I mean? It's like a joke. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. He took the picture, then, then we, then we went down. So that's, that's one little story that has nothing to do with the sermon today at all. <laughs> I have no idea why I got into that. Uh, today's message is called Stepping Forward, a study in the effects of the first of faith. To really study the book of Nehemiah, which is we're going to continue in uh, this month while Alex is on vacation, we need to know the history of the temple. And I'm going to do kind of a quick upbring history in, in about 60 seconds. Do you remember the nation of Israel? They're in the desert in their, their 40 years of separation. You remember that? They crossed the Jordan. They developed this kingdom in the promised land called Jerusalem. Uh, they build this temple. They start to disobey God. They build Jerusalem in the temple. And the, the nation is put into fractions, the north and the south, and Judea, and all the rest happens. And then eventually, this kingdom comes, Nebuchadnezzar, and he wipes out the nation of Israel because God said, man, I'm, I'm sick of your disobedience. He sent prophets and kings. None of them were getting it right. It was all a mess. So he takes these people into captivity again. So they were in captivity in Egypt. Remember that? They were in lost in the desert for 40 years. They build this nation about 120 years later. They go into captivity for 70 years. This town is desolated. Ezra and Habakkuk uh, and uh, um, Haggai come back. Sorry, not Habakkuk. At the end of the 70 years, God restores these people and he brings them back to Jerusalem. So here are these people whose entire lives have been all about being slaves or being uh, imprisoned or being wanderers in the desert or not having a home. They had this little brief moment and they messed it all up. And so here they come with all their stuff wandering back through this land to see their homeland. What God says, this is what I'm calling, this is your promised land. This is where I'm calling you to call home. And it's just a mess. It's rubble. Ezra convinces them to start to build the temple. Remember, they go and they start to build the temple, but really, they're more interested in building their own homes first. Then Haggai comes. He's like, hey, why are, are your uh, houses so nice and this house of God is desolate? And so they build up the temple. It's all, it all gets finished. Now, for a hundred years, they live that way. They have somewhat homes. They have the temple again, but they have no wall that defends them from everybody else. And the nation of Israel is spread all over the place. A hundred years later, there's this man named Nehemiah. He has a government job for a king named Xerxes in a faraway land, pagan land. And his brother comes to visit him and he says, hey man, how, tell me about the homeland. Tell me what it's like in Jerusalem. Is it, is it the golden city? Is it a, is it a city on the hill the way the Lord said? And his brother's like, man, no, it's not. We kind of get kicked around. It's not what you think at all. It's, it's desolate. We've been getting raped and pillaged for for a century. And it burdens Nehemiah's heart. So as you know, the rest of the story, he goes to the king, <clears throat> prays to the Lord, goes to the king, gets enough money and ability to travel across this land because he is going to rebuild this wall. He goes, it's in rubble. There's a ton of opposition uh, along the way. But 52 days later, the wall is assembled. So you have... A temple. You have homes. Now you have a wall. The restoration of Israel, the way God promised, is almost complete. 
The only thing left is the people. Now you get through chapter 7 of Nehemiah, and most people, I, I listened to probably 10 or 15 sermons about Nehemiah, chapter 7, just to see what people were doing. I couldn't find one of them outside of like an ancient Hebrew class that read through chapter 7. We're going to read through it today. You're going to hate me, but you don't want to be me, because I'm going to have to pronounce all these Hebrew names out loud. I don't want to skip over any part of the word, because every part of the word is valuable. And I believe that there's something that we can glean from this scripture today. Does that make sense? So we're going to be in chapter 7 of Nehemiah. But before we go there, I want to start today with a quote. This is from William Shakespeare. He says, Nothing is so common as the wish to be remarkable. That's something that connects us all together. I wanted to be in the NFL as a kid more than I wanted anything. When I got to college, I thought I was one step closer. I really wanted to be in the NBA, but I wasn't tall enough. Or fast enough, or skilled enough, athletic enough. I really, there was just no hope. But I, I thought the NFL could be it. Then I got kicked out of CSU, I got in trouble. I still thought, man, I can make it happen. Then playing football, I lost a kidney. Spent 80 days in the hospital, had 31 surgeries, still thinking, man, I can come back from this. I can recover. It was like the Lord was banging symbols in my head, like, hey, stupid, this isn't going to work. I didn't really care if I was an NFL player or an NBA player or a congressman. You know what I wanted to be? Remarkable. I remember as a little kid, somebody asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't have a time, I didn't have a definition. Or who you do you want to be? You couldn't say a job. Who do you want to be? And I remember saying a truthful statement before I ever realized it was true. I told this teacher, Mrs. Ford, I said, I want to be the best. I don't care at what. My heart was to want to be remarkable. And I think you can say the same. Some of you want to be remarkable wives or uh, businessmen. You want to do something that leaves a stamp in history that has some weight. That does something. Because of that quote, I want to tell you a story. Because there's two types of remarkable. <clears throat> oh, sorry. We're going to go back. There you go. Messing stuff up now. I want to tell you a story about basketball. March 2nd, 1962, rainy day in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I was recently listening to a podcast that talked about this story. It kind of blew me up. 4,000 people in the stands. The NBA really isn't like a certified league yet. And so there's just a bunch of guys who love basketball playing. But this was the greatest basketball game ever played. Philadelphia Warriors are the best team in the league because they have the best player in the league. You might have heard of him before. His name is Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain stands 7 feet 1 inch tall. He's like 275 pounds. Now most people that big are kind of like... Just unathletic ogres. You know, I'm kind of like the minimum cutoff. I'm when you start to break the odds between athletic and just total gloves. Most guys in the NBA today that are that tall just sort of take up space, but not Wilt. Man, Wilt glided across the floor. There's no recording of that game, unfortunately, but there is an audio that I got to listen to. It's spotty and hard. Wilt Chamberlain in one basketball game scored 100 points in a single game. 
What's remarkable about that is he only averaged about 50 points a game that season, which is way more than anybody else will ever average in any part of the NBA history from now forevermore. But what's significant about it is not that he scored a ton of points, it's how he scored them. You see, Wilt Chamberlain was a horrendous free throw shooter. Now for those of you that aren't sports fans, a free throw... Is a shot 15 feet away from the basket where nobody can contest the shot. Somebody fouls you, you get to walk to the line, and you get to shoot two shots typically for free. It's called a free throw. Now, for some people, this, this should be super easy. But for some of us, it can kind of be like a fish you never caught. Will Chamberlain lifetime shot under 40% from the free throw line. That's terrible. That's awful. But in 1962, a guy by the name of Rick Barry went to him and said, you need to change your approach. He said, you need to do something different. And in 1962, he shot about 75%. And on that night, in March 2nd, 1962, he shot incredible because he shot 87% from the free throw line. He made 32 free throws. You know how he shot? Underhanded. Most typically and widely known as the granny shot, which is certifiably, unarguably, the best way to shoot a free throw. Rick Barry, the inventor of the shot, I mean, his dad really taught him how to do it, was in the NBA. He's the only guy really to do it in the NBA. He's the greatest period free throw shooter period ever period. One season he missed six free throws. You shoot like 300 a year. Will Chamberlain, the best player arguably ever, Made 40% of his free throws. What's really interesting about the story is not the 100-point game. It's two weeks later, Wilt Chamberlain was recorded playing basketball for the Warriors in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Shooting traditionally again. He knew the right answer and he chose not to do it. Why do people know what's right and not do what's right? I'm not talking about moments in your life where you weren't sure about what to do, you made a guess and you guessed wrong. I'm talking about knowing the right thing and not doing it. And making up some opinion or some approach or some reason why you're justified not to do the right thing when you know what it is. Why do people step out, step forward into what is right and then shrink back? I want to talk about those people today because there's two types of the remarkable life. There's the remarkable life where you live, where a bunch of people were doing something, you step in and you get to live the same type of remarkable that they live. But then there's the remarkable life where somebody steps out of the crowd or the mass because they know that something is wrong and they need to make it right. Wilt Chamberlain is the greatest basketball player, arguably, to ever live, but would have been no argument had he just decided to shoot underhanded. <clears throat> he has an uh, autobiography that I've read. I'm a big sports fan. If you're interested in that, you can read it. But he has this throwaway comment about throwing upside down. You know why he said he stopped? He didn't want to seem like a sissy. You are trading the, the, the greatest of something in your life. Because you don't want to be perceived as weak. Rick Barry, when he was in high school, he's the guy that shot all the free throws. He was nervous about it too. And he said, Dad, I don't want to do this because everyone's going to laugh at me. And you know what his dad said? 
His dad said, son, they can't laugh at you if you never miss. And he just about never missed. There's a difference between being liked and being right. Now, to, to encapsulate this whole story, right? I want to use a word. So when I use this word, I want you to think about all that this meant. I want to call it the threshold. Okay? Wilt Chamberlain has a high threshold. He needs a lot of people to do something before he's willing to do it. Make sense? Rick Barry, Nehemiah, Jesus, the Christian that we should be, has a low threshold. They don't need a lot of people, the world, to be doing something before they are willing to do it. Does that make sense? Think about it like this. A person with a low threshold is a leader. A person with a high threshold is a follower. Make sense? We're going to use these words a lot as we jump into the scripture here. Okay. Nehemiah. Chapter 7, verses 5 through 72. This is going to be a list of names. Remember when I was talking to you about Ezra? When Ezra, way before Nehemiah, got to the to the ruins of Jerusalem, he wrote a list of the people God wanted to be in that town, in that kingdom. Alex talked about it uh, really well last week. He said, God was asking for his people to come home. Ezra writes this list, hundred years past, Nehemiah comes and builds the wall. The wall is finished, but he knows he needs people for the wall. His job wasn't to just build the wall, it was to create a kingdom for the Lord. Make sense? So he goes to his office and he's digging through his office because he knows there's some piece of history that can speak to these people. I'm spilling my stuff. He finds that list, which is this, this history of genealogy, and he gathers everybody around. He says, hey, gather around, gather around. The wall is finished. You guys did a good job, but I want to read you something. And he opens up this old book, and he starts to read off these people's names. And these people are in the crowd, and they're hearing their name. Think about it like this. It would be like your grandpa or the patriarch in your family, whoever that is, standing in front of you on the 4th of July, gathering you all around to read the Declaration of Independence. Does that make sense? Or on Christmas Eve, your grandfather gathering everybody around to talk about the birth of Jesus. You aren't living it, but because you're associated with that part of history, it's a, it's a nostalgic reminder of who you are and where you come from and where God has asked you to go. Make sense? Okay, so he, this is Nehemiah reading this list of old. And imagine these people are in the crowd hearing their name. <clears throat> so, I've written the phonetic read or uh, understanding of each one of these words in little tiny pin right above each word of the Bible. I have been practicing, but I'm a poor reader. So don't laugh at me. I have my, my drink up here because I'm about to read an entire book. If you guys will join with me in chapter seven, starting in verse five, we'll end <clears throat> in 72. Yeah, you heard me right. Here we go. <sighs> Help me Lord. Verse five. Then my God, Put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people uh, to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of genealogy, or the book of genealogy of those who'd come up first, that's when Ezra was there, in which I found the following record. Verse 6. 
These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem, to Judah, to the city, who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramahan, Ramah, uh, Namahani, Mordecai, Bilishan, Misperth, Begevi, Nahum, Bahana, <clears throat> the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Sepharitha, three, 372. The sons of Aras, 652. The sons of uh, Pahath, Moab. The sons of Jeshua, Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 670. The sons of Bitanui, uh, 648, the sons of Bebai, 628, the sons of Asgad, 322, the sons of Adekohim, 666, the sons of Begavi, 2067, the sons of Adin, 655, the sons of Atir and of Heskadha, uh, at 98, the sons of Asham, 328, the sons of Bezai, <coughs> sorry, Bezai, 324, the sons of Harpith, uh, 112, the sons of Gibeon, the, the men of Bethlehem, Sorry, the sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Anipahah, 188. The sons of Antoth, Antonoth, 128. The men of Beth, Asmarev, 42. The men of uh, Karath, Jerim, uh, and Kamracha, Beeroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michamas, 122. The men of Bethel and I, uh, 123. The men of another Nebo. Could you be imagined to be called the other Nebo? That'd be kind of a bummer. Um, are you from Nebo or the other one? I'm from the other one. The sons of the other Elam. There it is again. <clears throat> 1,254. The sons of Harim. 1,320. The men of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono. Everybody say, oh no. 721. The sons of Siha, uh, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jedi, sorry, Jedahiah, um, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Hiram, of Haram, 1,017. By the way, we're halfway there. Wasn't that bad? The Leviites, the sons of Jeshua, uh, Kadimil, uh, the sons of Hedavah, 774. The singers, the sons of Asaphah, uh, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, uh, the sons of Atir, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shahobi, 138. The temple servants, the sons of uh, Ziha, the sons of Asufa, the sons of Tabuth, the the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sai, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, Lebanana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Salami, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Reha, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazim, uh, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pish, the sons of Bahasi, the sons of Menium, the sons of Nepusium, the sons of Bakukbuk, Bakukbuk, the sons of Hekapa, the sons of Har Har, the sons of Basilth, the sons of Mendach, the sons of Harshich, Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Nazariah, 
<coughs> Nesiah, sorry, the sons of Hetipitha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Serpreth, the sons of Perdiah, Perida, sorry, the sons of Jeliah, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gadel, the sons of Sepathiah, the sons of Hachtil, um, the sons of Perush, Hazabim, the sons of Ammon, the sons, the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. These were who came up from Timah and Telharsha, uh, Sherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show their father's house or their descendants <coughs> uh, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Delilah, uh, and the sons of Toba, Tobiah, and Nekuda, 642. The priests, 63, sorry, of the priests, the sons of Hobahiah, the sons of Azkaz, the sons of Barzillia, the sons uh, took a wife of the daughters of Barzillia and the Gilalite and and was named after them. These searched among the ancestral registration and could not, it could not be located. Therefore, they considered them unclean and excluded them from the priesthood. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly, we're almost there, together was 4,360 besides their male and female servants, whom were 7,337. That's about 50,000 in total. They were 245 male singers. Their, her- their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. Their donkers, donkeys, donkers. <laughs> their donkeys, uh, 6,720. Some of them among the heads of the father's household gave to the work. The governor gave the treasury about a thousand gold darchments, which is about a day's wage money. Uh, 50 basins, 530 priest garments. Some of the heads of the father of the households gave into the treasury 20,000 gold darchments and, uh, 2,200 silver minus. Which, that which were the rest of the people gave 20,000 gold darchments and 2,000 silver manas and 67 priest garments. Now the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers and some of the people and the temple servants and all of Israel lived in the cities and in the seventh month they came, uh, the m- month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. <laughs> Oh, my Lord. Just a, a quick understanding there. What it talks about, there was these people that couldn't get in. Uh, essentially, you had to have like a pass, like your like your ID card. And your ID card was your ancestral registration. Your, my, I, I prove that I'm a part of this, this kingdom because my bloodline says so. And there were people who married out of where they shouldn't and, and lost their registration so they couldn't be a part of what they were doing. It says that they were seen as unclean until a priest heard from um, Thimum and or Timium and Unum, which is there was these two stones on the priest's garment, typically in the temple. And there's two, two stones. And custom was to pray to the Lord to give an answer, and through some means that's still unknown in history, the Lord would essentially make one stone more prominent than the other. And that would give like the answer to your yes or no question. Think about red light, green light. 
So what this guy is saying, the governor is saying, you can't be a part of this until a priest says that they've heard from Lord via these stones that you can come in. Until then, you're seen as unclean. Now remember, this is when, this is Ezra's original document. So he's recording who has come into the land. Remember, it's desolate. They, they build the house, not their temple. He says that there were people, when they were carrying all their stuff, they got there, they realized there was a work that needed to be done, and so they gave of their money and their goods. At the end, when it says the governor gave so much, and the, and the house heads of households gave so much, and then the, all the rest of the people gave so much, that's giving to the original temple. I don't want to confuse this set of, of words with Nehemiah now. Nobody's giving money when Nehemiah was around. He's reading this document to inspire these people as they hear their names. Make sense? Now, I understand why pastors all over the country just skip over this. One, it's impossible to read. I had to spend almost all day away from my wife yesterday practicing my head to get the names right. But the second reason is, is there's, it's hard to glean that from a bunch of names. Or a bunch of, it's hard to glean biblical inspiration for your week with a bunch of names. And we have a short amount of time. I have a very difficult job. I'm supposed to change your life in 30 minutes. You know, this is hard stuff. Preaching. That was a joke. You're allowed to laugh. The truth is, is this is easy to breeze over. But I don't think we should. What can we glean from these people? First thing I want you to know is you are these people. You are a people that left the comfort of Babylon to the ruins of Jerusalem. Being a Christian is a rewarding thing, but it isn't easy. These people were called out in the comfort of their pagan lifestyles. People think, man, it was bad. It was bad at first, but after a while, it kind of faded away. It wasn't that awful. They left because it was that God was calling them to these ruins to rebuild it up. You've left as Christian people from your life of comfort. Some people come to Christianity because they're broken. But once you become a Christian, you realize how easy it is to live in the world. Am I wrong? We leave Babylon every day to make a choice to become a Christian. I'm going to do this right thing today. I'm going to step out in faith today. Jerusalem, my Jerusalem, your Jerusalem, whatever that is, may be ruins, but you're going to step into it. You are these people. They took a step forward when Ezra called them out. They see the temple and how bad it is, right? They're these faithful people. There's this nation again. They're on the move. And then they shrivel back. They start to work on their own homes, Instead of what God's asked them to do. And this goes on for a hundred years. Nehemiah is asking them again. He's encouraging them again. Not to shrivel back. You've stepped forward. Wilt Chamberlain stepped forward. And now he's saying, don't shrivel. Well, I don't want to look like a sissy. (laughs) I can't believe he did that. One other point. The difference between Nehemiah and these people is what interests me. Because Nehemiah comes from the same background. His parents are all slaves and captives too. He comes from the same comfort of Babylon to the ruins of Jerusalem. Nothing about them is different. Why does this one man step forward when nobody else will? Why does it take this catalyst to cause change? You know, I'm going to jump off side note here for just a second. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Everybody's talked about that. Jared talked about it. Alec talked about it. I don't want to talk about it in the first service. 
But uh, Carrie, you guys know Carrie, first service, he said, he, maybe he's just more aware now, but he made this comment to me. He said, I don't know if I've ever seen our nation more fractured today than any time in his life. It's crazy. I asked my wife last night, there was this poll on Twitter. I couldn't believe somebody had the audacity to put this in print. They said, which side are you on? On one side of the poll, they put the African-American population, as if you guys are just some, just, just button on a, on Twitter. And on the other side, they just said, or police. What? Social experiment. I asked my wife. I just said, okay. Honey, which side do you want? She goes back and forth. She doesn't like the question any more than I don't like the question. She's like, well, and well, and... But they're called to a higher standard, and man, all my friends have been oppressed, and back and forth, back and forth. You know what the truth is? The whole damn thing's a lie. That there's been some fictional line drawn in the sand somewhere. It's a joke. Here's the truth. Sin sucks. It corrodes people, and it hurts everyone. And you think because you can sin behind closed doors where no one's going to see and it's not going to affect anybody, that stuff will grow and it will permeate and it will affect today and it will affect futures beyond this. The truth is sin hurts people and there is one hope and his name is Jesus and I don't care what political side you stand on or what color your skin is or what past you have, you got one chance, Jack, and his name is Jesus. That's it. So I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna tell anybody in my congregation ever that you can't post on Facebook or you can't have a debate. Man, I, I love debate. I love having conversations with people. Lindsay was worried. We were in Chicago staying at one of her friend's house. She thought we were gonna get kicked out. <laughs> Cause I was just like, well, brother, you said it, so I have to press you on it now. <laughs> I don't mind having healthy conversation. But we can cast something to the world in social media and you have no control over the response. So unless you are absolutely sure that you are helping people from that medium, I'm not going to tell you you can't post. Please don't hear that from me. My question is to you, will you consider what, you, what you're doing? Not for today, not so you can be expressed and you can be heard. I, I understand that. I want you to consider what you press send, what it does to 50, 60, 70, 80, 600 years from now. See, it's men and women who will step out in faith and view themselves as unpopular, or not view themselves, but be viewed by the world as unpopular people that are the real world changers. That's the remarkable life. Not a litany of history on Facebook. Unremarkable, everybody does it, it's not different than anybody else. It's not unique. Do we understand that? Okay, I got a little fired up. I got to rail it in because we're on a time slot here. Does that make sense? Did, are you, you heard me? Okay, you heard me. So from that point to this point, why is being first so hard? Everybody's trying to speak up at the same time, but nobody wants to step forward first. Why is that so difficult? There are four reasons why I believe it's difficult today. And trust me, this isn't a new thing. This has been true forever. Because it's the same lie of the devil. The, the, real, the real crime of this is, I'm going to jump on this point one last time. It's not that the people are being shot. That's a tragedy. 
It's horrific. I don't care what the circumstance. It's not that men who are, are put into a place, uh, they're in a compromising position and they're fearing for their life and now the whole world's bearing down on them. That's also a tragedy. But the real tragedy is, and here's the scheme of the devil. This is how wise he is. It's that men and women and families are arguing at dinner tables all across the country about it. He's dividing homes everywhere. He's pitting one brother against another for some political reason or, or some indifferent thing. People ask me, man, what's your political stance? I say, I'm a Christian. Because I'm sick and tired of all the rest of this. Are you with the police or African Americans? Man, I'm a Christian. And the first thing that means is I'm not going to play into that whole lie. I'm not going to avoid it, and I'm not going to not talk about it. And I'm not talking about we just need to love everybody, and we'll just all compromise, because that becomes a different type of cesspool. There is a difference between disagreeing with somebody and loving them. I can disagree with you and love you. And because I think homosexuality is wrong doesn't mean I don't love you. That, that, it, there's a difference. I am a conservative man politically generally, but it doesn't mean you can have a liberal worldview and I don't love you. We have to stop saying because you disagree with me, you don't like me or you hate me. I don't hate you. There's a difference. And we need to be able as a Christian community to divide them. Good? That's why being first is hard because we feel like if we step out, the world is going to take a baseball bat to our teeth. So we shied away to the crowd. We become Wilt Chamberlain. I don't want to be out here shooting granny shots all by myself, so I'm going to shrink back. And if everybody else does it, then I'll do it. You know what the problem is with that? He never became remarkable. He became talented. He became a Hall of Famer. But he was never remarkable to the fullest of his potential. Rick Brary, the guy who did shoot underhand all his life... He was never the same level of, of, of athlete that Will Chamberlain was. But nobody will ever say he wasn't the best NBA basketball player he could ever be. Are you the best person you can ever be? Are you the best Christian today? Are you Christ personified on this earth today? No, step out. Step forward. Because there's an effect to this. There's four reasons why being first is so hard. First is our past. Think about the Israelites. Their whole life has been captivity and slavery. I can't be this person because of who I am. And because of who I am, it's what I'm attached to. My family's in disarray, so I'm going to be in disarray. My family was an addict, so I'm going to be an addict. My yesterday determines my today and thus my tomorrow. We have to stop giving our past a vote. The second, so the first is your past. You can write that down. The second, you need to check your expectations. We put a time clock on stuff. You ever notice that? We step forward and we say, this isn't causing change as fast as I thought. I'm going to step back. I gave it two weeks. We put an expectation on things that there's a time slot for how things should go. And that's not the truth. My whole life, I've wanted to see my abs. That's a funny thing. I've written workouts to do it, thought about it, dreamt about it, but I've never done it. I'll go to the gym for two weeks, feel that soreness right about here. It's like, man, nothing's happening. I'm just genetic, genetically unable to see my abs. That's not true. That's not true at all. I'm unwilling to step forward and stay there. Even if I'm all alone. Even if I have to let stuff go to be where I am. Make sense? So the first is your past. The second is your expectations. The third, this is a hard one, your confidence. Israel had been kicked around for a long time. Not just in their past, but who they are. 
We have this presumption in our life that everybody else should live a remarkable life. People in Time Magazine and Us Weekly, they are remarkable and we are normal. Know what? You're a Christian. You're not normal by definition. You are not normal. By the very fabric of your soul, once you become a Christian, you're not normal. Uh, one of the, the founding kind of fathers in my life and people I looked up to forever, his name is Rick Richter. You might know him. He's a lot of things, but that cat is not normal. He looks to the world like he's insane. You know what he is? He's just out here. He stepped out like Nehemiah did. Nehemiah looked weird. Some of these people we're going to talk about in a minute, they looked weird. They, they weren't interested in being liked because they were so devastatingly interested in being right. And the only way to be right is to be with Christ. You're not normal because you're a Christian, and therefore your confidence shouldn't be normal. We don't have what it takes is a lie. The last one is intimidation. I talked about this. The task is too big and I'm too small. We are just little soldiers, and that's Goliath over there. Well, David, a 15-year-old with a low threshold, stepped out and said he may be a giant, but he will be eaten by dogs today. That makes sense? Okay, so the four. Let's go over them again. Why is it hard to, to be first, our past, our expectation, our confidence, and our intimidation? You want to know what's interesting about those things? When you become a Christian, they change. They morph. They instantly have to change. What can you be intimidated? If Christ is for us, who can be against us? Who would dare step against me? The devil, he's already beaten. Okay, our confidence. How much can your confidence grow in the trust of Jesus? Oh, how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. Paul was a lot of things, but he was confident. He wasn't egotistical. He was humble and confident at the same time. Our expectations. I want you to try something. What if you just took your expectations about your life or who you're supposed to be and you let them go for a moment and you just expected what God expected of you? You didn't see it as a task. Like God wants me to be all these things and it's like taking out the trash. Like I just don't want to do it. Netflix is on. I'd rather do that than take out the trash. I mean, I'm sure it's possible, but it's hard. What if you just expected of yourself what God expected of you? And then walked out of your door and went to work like, I have an expectation, and my expectation is his expectation. Lastly, our past. We have to stop giving our past a vote. When you become a Christian, guess what chains are broken? The whole lot of them. The Bible says that when you approach God with all of your sin, if you're a Christian, baptized in the blood of Jesus, he says, I've forgotten what you're even talking about. I've removed it from me. It's as far as the east is from the west. You want to know what's cool about the east and the west? If, if I had east on my road trip, and I go around the world, when I get back to California and I continue heading east, what direction am I going? East. Now, if I go north, and I get to the North Pole, and I come down the other side, what direction am I now going? South. East never becomes west. North will become south. I'm as far as the east is from the west because they can never become each other. He's saying it's impossible. Your sin is as far removed from me as taking a right at Colorado, heading towards Kansas, and it becoming the West somehow. Just can't happen. That make sense? Okay. Sorry, I have to hurry. I'm getting all fired up. I want to talk about river steppers, house sellers, and wall builders. River steppers. These are examples of people with low thresholds and the effect of those people. 
The first is river steppers in Joshua 3, uh, 14 through 15. These are the priests taking the covenant, which was the housing place of God, the spirit of God. And they used to carry it on a tray. It was like very risky stuff. I mean, if you messed it up, you were dead. It was the end of you. So this is a very big responsibility. Here they are crossing the Jordan in the spring. They couldn't uh, wade across it, and there was no way they could sail across either. They couldn't wade in it, and they couldn't sail across. So here they are with the greatest responsibility in their life, these priests. And they're looking at this river. It says that the priest's toes were in the river. How did they get across? One man, one man stepped forward. And as he stepped, the water parted. And it says that they, the priests, were standing with the covenant, the spirit of God. The most valuable piece of historical treasure in all of the world. And they're standing there like this on dry ground with walls of water on either side of them. But get this, not they just crossed the whole nation of Israel. The very same nation that would once build the wall that we're talking about in Nehemiah. One man stepped out in faith and it led another man to step out in faith. Here's another one. House sellers. Acts chapter 2 verse 45, one of our foundational scriptures. <clears throat> Jesus dies on the cross. He raises from the dead. He makes his apostle or his disciples apostles. They're praying. Holy Spirit falls. All these people are getting saved. Peter stands up and gives the sermon. It's the birth of the church. And at the end of the sermon, it says, man, all these people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They gathered together daily. They started praying together and breaking bread together. And then it says this in verse 45. And they began selling their property. Everybody say property. And possessions. And were sharing them with anyone who might have need. One of these jokers had a house, realized we need money to run this operation, so he sold it. Man, I don't know. I love this church. And I've been homeless for this church. That's a long, different story. But I have a house now. I don't know if I'm willing to... Like, you can come Bible study. Come on over. You, we do that. I'll give you some tea or something. But sell it? See, what's interesting about people with a low threshold is they don't think like that. They see a need. They don't care about being liked. They see what is right. And they step forward. And you know what's interesting about one man who sells his house? The one becomes the they. And, and, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with any of them who might have need. I don't have enough to help everybody here. To help this city. But we do. Isn't that interesting? I'm not a millionaire. None of us are. But together we're way more valuable than a million dollars. It's an interesting thing. But it takes one person with a low threshold who has enough guts and faith to step forward and say, I'll do it. The house seller. Man, that always makes me nervous. And the last one is the wall builder. Nehemiah is the same age, same uh, background, same life story as all of these people in Israel. And he steps forward and nobody else is. And 52 days later, the problem is solved. Have you ever had something in your whole life that's been messing with you? person you should have said sorry to that you didn't? A uh, mistake that you've made or a, a thing that you know you need to do. You're just supposed to pray with that person or you're just supposed to stand up, look somebody else in the eye and say you're sorry. And it weighs on you. You avoid them. When they're near you, you're like, hi, bye. <laughs> Have you ever thought that maybe that problem is 52 days away from being solved? 
I'm $400,000 in debt. So it doesn't matter. I'm just not even going to look at it because it hurts my heart whenever I do. I know I've made mistakes. I'm not going to mess with it. Have you ever thought for just a second that maybe you're only 52 days away? These people were ransacked for a hundred years and the whole time they were two months away from solving the whole thing. You're not that far away. It's not that big of a problem. It's not that impossible of a task. Nehemiah wasn't relying on his own skill or on his own ability. He was relying on God's ability and God's power. And God got an impossible task done in 52 days. This isn't a small wall. This wall is seven stories tall. And 50,000 people built it. It's enormous. Six stories tall, I think. It's enormous. Because they didn't want people to throw stuff over the wall. They did it in 52 days. I couldn't build a snowman in 52 days. Is there anything in your life that's just 52 days away that you've been carrying for 100 years? Nehemiah wasn't concerning himself with the job. He was concerning himself with the power of God. And thus, in the same way, he didn't depend on the skill needed, but instead relied on the power of God. Being a Christian should lower your threshold and increase your ability to act when the world says stop. I'll say that one more time. Being a Christian should lower your threshold and increase your ability to act when the world says stop. 1 Corinthians 2.5 says this, that you may have faith, threshold and faith are interchangeable words, that you may have faith not in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Hebrews eleven six And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I don't want you to try and attack your task or your problem or who you are or what you have to change to get abs or whatever because you think it's necessary and you have the skill to do so. I want you to do so because you have faith that God will work. The butterfly effect of faith. Butterfly effect. Does everybody know what the butterfly effect is? It's this cool theory. They call it the butterfly effect. I call it the sovereignty of God. Okay, the butterfly effect is this. That a a butterfly flaps its wings and the wind from that flap moves a leaf so far that it snaps off a tree, dries up and rolls in the wind to a campfire, which sets on fire. The fire, the leaf flies away from the fire, lands in a bush, sets a house on fire. That a man wakes up in the smoky of the night and picks up his children and it escapes, realizes that he needs to be a fireman because that's his life's work, becomes one, runs into a burning house one night, saves a young baby who grows up to become an astronaut and is the first to land on Mars. I don't know. The idea is that if that butterfly doesn't flap its wings, the leaf, the leaf doesn't move, it doesn't fall, the fire never happens, it never lights the house on fire, the guy never becomes a firefighter, never saves the girl, and nobody lands on Mars. You call it the butterfly effect, I call it the sovereignty of God. That he has a plan that is divinely powerful and incredibly detailed. The butterfly effect of, of faith is us participating in that plan. Watch this. The nation of the, the priests in Israel stepped out in faith that caused the water to move, that caused this nation to build this wall, that caused Nehemiah to step out for us and build this wall, 
that 400 years later, on an April morning, um, in the beginning of, of, of a festival called Passover, a man named Jesus could ride on a donkey through those very same gates, crossing that very same wall, that he could take a step out in dramatic faith and save uh, the world, that a people who would follow him called his disciples would stand up and rise against the world, saying, we have found a way where there is no way and his name is Jesus, that would cause a man to sell his house to birth the church that you are sitting in today. Nehemiah stepped forward when nobody else would, and we are reaping the benefits from it. If you want to change your life today, I want you to think about your lineage. Not just your immediate now. What are you doing today that will affect 600 years from now? By faith. You can't take money 600 years from now. <laughs> it doesn't matter. George Washington saved like 250 pennants or whatever for his <clears throat> children as an investment. <laughs> With interest, it's like five grand a day. He thought he was going to change the world. It's not. Money can't do that. What investment are you making today that will affect your kids, 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 kids? See, I come from a past of divorce. Six consecutive generations filled with divorce. Not one skipped. Both sides of my family. I have no idea what it, li- what it looks like to be a family. How am I supposed to be married to her? I'm damaged goods, man. My, my background, my genetics say divorce is imminent. So I just have to accept to be divorced to her. The Lord casts my vision up from my past, from my confidence, from my expectations, from my intimidation. He brings me from my very personal life. And he says, I want you to look out over the horizon. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. And he says to me, like Rick Barry's dad said to him, Beck, if divorce isn't an option, how could you ever get divorced? Rick, if you never miss, how can they laugh at you? Now, I'm a married man who sees that generations from now will be changed because I'm not going to do that. I'm going to step out in faith when my entire world says I have to be divorced. It's just going to happen. You're going to get fat. She's going to get uninterested. And away you go. That's not going to happen. Not by my ability. What ability do I have? What background says I could do that? But by faith. I step forward and there's a butterfly effect. The sovereignty of God is changed. God's sovereignty doesn't change, but the story of our lives changes because of the faith he puts into us. He lets us participate in this wild and crazy story. Okay. I'm, I'm a little bit over. I'm sorry, but I need to do this. We're going to do a little, uh, demonstration real quick. Everybody in your bulletins, there should be an envelope with two cards in it. We're going to go through this quickly. Can we get the offering set up? And Jared, can you jump to the back? We're going to take up our offering now really quickly while we do this little exercise. What I want us to do this week is step out in faith. If you don't have a bulletin or what I'm looking for is an envelope with two blank note cards in it, I want you to raise your hand. If you don't have the envelope with two blank cards in it, I want you to raise your hand. Put your hand high in the air and we'll grab them for you. We're going to get ready to pay our tithe. Go ahead and come up now. Lord, we just thank you for today and your sovereign will over our life and the demonstration of your grace in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and pay your tithe in the basket, but while you're doing so, listen to me. 
There are two cards in the envelope. You are going to write the same thing on each card. One card is going to be put into an envelope, and then you're going to hold that envelope in the air, and we are going to take it from you. If you'll write your name on it or some sort of identifying marker so that you know what which envelope is yours. In the second card, which is the same stuff written on it, you're going to put that card in your Bible. Now the question is, what do you put on that card? What I want you to think about, we're going to be quiet for a second and, and, and just in prayer here while, while Jared plays. There's something in your spirit, there's something on your heart that you need to step out in faith for. Maybe you've never prayed for somebody in public and you know you should. You've just been rejecting every time God nudges you. Maybe you think, I want to read my Bible every morning, man, but I just, I get a day into it and I'm like, forget it, I don't want to do this. Maybe you need to say sorry to somebody. Maybe there's an addiction. Today it's going to stop. Maybe that there's there's something going on in your life. Somebody you need to talk to, something you need to do, but you have to do it by faith because you've been carrying this load for a long time. But this week you're going to you're going to step out and do it by faith. I want you to write in a sentence that thing. I'm going to pray for people today or whatever it is. You're going to write the same thing on each card. And you're going to do that thing this week. Because, you know what, me by myself acting in faith, it doesn't change the world. I'll end up like Will. I'll fade away. But what if each of us acted by faith this week? I can't make a difference, but we can. If each of us as Christians stepped by faith forward this week into something we never would have without each other, what does it look like for a whole nation to take one step together? That's the stuff that starts to change the world. So I'm going to repeat the directions one time. Two cards. You're going to write the same step of faith on each card. You're going to keep one for yourself as a reminder. You're going to put one in the envelope and put your name on that envelope and then hold that envelope in the air. Take some time in prayer and see what the Lord would have you write. about that I got I got going I'm gonna give you the benediction now if you'd like to stay and continue in worship or need prayer I will stay at the front but I'm gonna pray over you now if you're continuing to write that's no problem just put your envelope up as soon as you're done now as you leave today Alec will be right at the entrance what I want you to do is take an envelope that isn't yours you can choose to open it or not that's up to you but I want you to be praying for that envelope. That the person who's stepping out in faith isn't alone. That we would pray for them. And then uh, you know that somebody's praying for you as well. So as you leave, be sure to see Alec before you go. Grab an envelope that isn't yours and be praying for that person this week. I pray that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. I pray that his face shines upon you. And that as you feel that light of the Lord, it would give you peace. I also pray that you would step out this week. That you would realize that the effect of your faith isn't just for you, but for generations to come. And I pray that you would understand we are not to rely on our own gifting or ability, but on the very power of God. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us, all that you've done for us, and all that you will do. And it's in Jesus' name we all pray. And everybody said, Amen.